This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. There is word this morning, as we were telling you, that the first direct Canadian evacuation flight out of Sudan has now departed. So it's about 1,800 Canadians that are stuck in that country and work is being done to get them out of there. Not fast enough, some would say, but I know a lot of countries are having that issue right now. It's been almost two weeks since fighting broke out in Sudan, causing people to flee and, and all of these citizens trying to find a way out and to come back home to Canada as well. So governments from Canada to the United States abroad. They've been struggling to get this done. How did this situation turn so quickly? Didn't anyone see this coming? So we wanted to learn more about the situation in Sudan. So this morning we have with us Tag Al-Kazin, who's a professor of African studies at Carleton University. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. You're most welcome. You're welcome. Now, what happened in Sudan here? Why is there suddenly so much fighting there? It is not really, it is sudden in action, but uh, the, the writing was very clear actually on the board that tension was rising. There were two parallel forces. The Sudanese army is 225,000 strong, the fourth strongest army in, uh, in Africa. And the rapid support forces were supposed to be uh, supporting them moving rapidly but as part of the armed forces, somehow they managed to grow uh, beyond any reasonable proportions, and they started to be a quasi-parallel uh, armed forces in Sudan. And as you know, this cannot happen. I mean, no, no, no army will accept that there is a parallel force parallel to it within the same country. And so what brought the tensions to the forefront then? Part of it, is the lack of tactfulness and, and knowledge by the international community. There is a, an, an independent and uh, uh, appointed, an independent person appointed by the Secretary General of the UN as an envoy to Sudan. And uh, in my own estimation, he made a lot of strategic mistakes when you have conflicts and bad governance, you work on the conflict first, and then you turn around and work on the governance. Well, he reversed the formula that anyone or one student will know. He did not tackle the conflict at all, and he started working on governance. I see this as a key issue for the flare-up. Is stability in Sudan still quite questionable there, Tag? Because that is, it's an area that has seen a lot of conflict over the last few decades, but it seemed like lately it had been quieter, hadn't it? Uh, there was a lot of fire simmering under the ashes. Uh, Sudan is a state, but is not a nation. There are 65 different ethnic groups in Sudan, many of them with their own language, with their own dances, their own tradition, their own jewelry. So this is not this is not Bangladesh, where 98% are Bengal. This is not Portugal. Uh, this is not even Egypt. 
So the cross-cutting communalities that keep a nation together just do not exist in Sudan. And there is no Sudanese, I, there was no Sudanese identity until 1821, the invasion of Muhammad Ali Basha from Egypt. After that invasion, Sudan as an entity, as a political entity, started to come out. So there are some structural defaults within the country that are leading to this havoc. And do you see it settling down? I know there's a ceasefire right now. Um, is, is that going to settle down, do you think, anytime soon? Or do you fear that this is just going to escalate? It is going to escalate because while there is a lot of talk about a uh, longer ceasefire, a lot of talk about the two generals meeting, uh, this morning the army said that uh, the army and foreign affairs they said that this is false. This is not going to happen. And the army is talking, talking about complete annihilation and complete surrender uh, of the rapid uh, support forces uh, before any talks can, can actually take place. Their people have died. Their headquarters have been ransacked. The Republican Palace has been destroyed. So now it is a matter of uh, military pride. And when you, when you go into that area, it is very, very difficult to stop people. But there is a lot of noise, really, and uh, very little uh, product on the, uh, on, on the ground. And as we speak now, fighting is going on, aerial bombardment is going on. And this is the main tool of the army now, the aerial bombardment. They have about 120 aircraft. Most of them are being used for this bombardment. It does seem to have caught the international community off guard, though, Tag, doesn't it? Because it feels like all of these countries are now scrambling to get people out. That's correct. And let me just zero into our own government. Uh, uh, when I talk to uh, several senior diplomats in foreign affairs, they were in a wait-and-see mode. And people who are in wait-and-see, they don't really have a plan. They are waiting for things to happen, and then they respond. So this is really where we stood. Our ground intelligence is actually rather poor. And in a, a difficult country like Sudan, there is need for very strong ground intelligence so that people are ahead of the events. Uh, and then the, the Western countries and the, even the Middle Eastern countries realized that there was no hope in a negotiating settlement and certainly I don't blame them. Their priority was to excavate their people. However, that had a very bad downside. People felt insecure and they had the assumption that, well, if the Western world is leaving, that means the whole country is now uh, hopeless for, for living. And then the mass exodus started. And that's certainly what we see happening now. Tag, thank you for your time this morning. Sure, you are welcome.